This is the Humerian Health Podcast. Spilling our guts for the well-being of yours. Today on the Humerian Health Podcast, I'm here with Dr. Sean Benzinger. Hola. <laughs> A lot, <laughs> and this is Amy Baker. Do a different language. Um, we're actually time. we're actually really excited because we're talking to Dr. Peter Abachi, MD, Medical Director, um, and he is with the Bay Area Pain and Wellness Center, um, and he is going to share with us his perspectives on conquering your chronic pain. His uh, his new book that just came out, um, great information about how to have a drug free approach for relief and restoration for chronic pain sufferers, which we know we have many, many of our listeners um, and followers who fit into that category. So great information. Great information. And considering that uh, chronic pain or the amount of people that are taking either pain medications or anti-inflammatories on a daily basis, uh, you need to hear this and uh, different approaches and a better understanding of how you can actually uh, create your own treatment protocol here in whatever town you're in. Uh, it doesn't have to be what you've been put on because, unfortunately, many times it's medication and, gee, deal with it. Uh, it's usually not a good health care program. But uh, let me share one other thing that motivated me here. Oh, no, you're going to share a story, aren't no, you? No, okay. no, this is information for oh, change. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, we'll no see. Story. I bet it turns into a story, but okay. <laughs> okay. I'm, well, later, <laughs> don't be ruining it. Okay. Um, but I only <laughs> Spoiler wanna, alert. Yeah. Whoa, it? she's going to die. Okay, so just, just for a quick insight, for those of you that take anti-inflammatories that are not doctor prescribed, but you're doing it from OTC, you're going to the pharmacy and just picking it up and taking it. Remember that anti-inflammatories are one of the number one causes of kidney failure, okay, number one, and that we have over 22,000 people die per year of excess use of anti-inflammatories. They are not intended for daily use. They are intended for, as the bottle often say, five to seven days possibly a little bit longer, and then you're supposed to check with your physician to find out what the problem is because you're not treating a problem, number one. Number two, Tylenol, I didn't say that, uh, acetaminophen, <laughs> which is the only painkiller that's on the marketplace, um, is the number one cause of liver failure. You would think alcohol would be the number yes. of cause of, it isn't, it's hmm. acetaminophen. Uh, and the reason why is because it can damage your liver with long-term use. Here's the bigger precaution for those, and this is just ladies uh -oh. uh, that happen to have that time of the month. And I'm only going to point it out because I remember one of the authors pointing this out as a key component. And then later, me getting a call two months later and saying, you know, you saved my daughter's life because da-da-da-da-da. Mm -hmm. And what it was is during the period, uh, frequently Tylenol or acetaminophen may be taken for, for pain control. It's highly recommended. It's, it's normal because it's short-term use. Well, unfortunately, if they're college-bound, they may, on occasion, imbibe no. those things that, yeah. And they may even imbibe those alcohols that use synthetic sugars so that it doesn't have many calories, but it still has the alcohol and those synthetic sugars. And you combine that with acetaminophen, and you can have toxic liver, and it can kill people. And it has, and it's common, more common than we'd say. So just keep in mind... Chronic use is not recommended in these types of medications. Just wanted to mention that. That was like a PSA. Don't you think? Like a public service announcement right at the beginning of our but podcast. But it's important. I mean, like 35,000 people there. Well, there's 57,000 people we just saved today. I love it. If they just listen. <laughs> well, they yeah. listen to me, but. Yeah, I, they do. No. <laughs> anyway. Okay, so, so, yeah. So, we're excited. Let's jump in. 
Uh, we're here at the Humarian Health Podcast today with Dr. Peter Abachi, MD and Medical Director at the Bay Area Pain and Wellness Center. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, we're super excited uh, to learn a little bit more just about the trajectory of your career and treating pain and, and why you got into that field. And I mean, you're just doing some really interesting, integrated uh, medical approaches to pain management, um, and some of which is in your book, Taking Charge of Your Chronic Pain, uh, some of which is just information that I found in doing my own research about you know your background and, and your experiences. So we're super excited really to, I mean, maybe first start out by just learning what what made you want to spend your um, your days and nights <laughs> thinking about and treating and help people deal with pain? Well, you know, it's interesting. When I got into pain as a specialty, it was a pretty new specialty uh, in the 90s. And at that time, I was doing an anesthesia residency. And at that time, pain management was primarily an offshoot or a subspecialty of anesthesia. And interesting, what got me into anesthesia, uh, part of it was the appeal of not having to deal with chronic disease, you know, to kind of go in there, do some things, try to help the patient, you know, get through a process, make them feel better, help them wake up feeling, you know, good and comfortable, and then moving on to the next patient. And I said, you know, I didn't really want to have to deal with all the chronic medical problems all my career. Um, so what did I do? I did the exact opposite, and I ended up um, going in a completely different direction and dealing with uh, really some of the most challenging uh, chronic pain problems uh, you can imagine. But what happened was I pain management was becoming new as a specialty, and I did some rotational work during my, my residency, and it seemed really interesting. It seemed really cool. I was uh, drawn to uh, the idea of you know being able to do procedures or give medications and instantaneously a person uh, feeling uh, much better and I thought wow how how great is that mm-hmm. and uh, that sort of grabbed me into doing a, a fellowship in pain management which I did at UCSF and sort of started to get introduced a little bit to you know it's a little bit more complicated than that the the whole person biopsychosocial model matters, mm-hmm. and what you do to a patient today doesn't necessarily mean he or she is going to be feeling great tomorrow or a month or a year later. And it really wasn't until I think I was in practice for, you know, at least three or four years that I start to really appreciate and understand what are the long-term effects and what are the long-term outcomes of some of the different treatments or medications or things that I was doing with my patients, and it kind of speaks to how it's hard to train people in medical school or in their residencies when they're only following patients for maybe, maybe they see them a couple times, they're following them for a few months, and then they, mm-hmm. you know, they graduate and they move on, and, um, you know, the academic setting doesn't really necessarily train doctors and, and, and practitioners and healers how to see the long-term big picture in, in people's lives, and so I you know, I kind of, now I find myself really being, you know, in the meat and the belly of chronic disease management, and um, and that's where I am now. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it's needed. I mean, you talk about a huge problem, and it's interesting that in your book, um, Conquer Your Chronic Pain, you talk about a life-changing, drug-free approach to relief, recovery, and restoration, which I think is huge. very interesting because yeah. of the gross overuse of a lot of uh, therapies that I think have um, created addiction problems and a lot of other issues. So um, let's talk a little bit about um, the politics of pain. How how do we get here? And then 
how do you see a way out? Yeah, so I, you know, I, I devoted a, a chapter in Cochlear Chronic Pain to, to the whole what we call politics of pain, and it's a, a, a phrase I, I use in my, you know, we use in my practice internally when we talk about the things that we see, but it really comes down to doing the right thing. What is right for the person? What is right for the patient and the family and the community that, that they live in? And unfortunately, our healthcare system almost all the time does not do the right thing for our patients. And that that goes back many, many years. And that's what really motivated me to want to, you know, I went from just being a private practice guy to, to trying to write books and, and blogs and, you know, do podcasts and other things was to get to help people understand you need to know about these things or you're not going to get treated right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people need a real whole person, uh, a holistic, a comprehensive, integrated approach to dealing with challenging chronic pain problems because, you know, there's so many layers to the onion. There's the psychological parts, the physical parts, the medical parts, the economic parts, the social parts, the, the family communication parts. And in order to help a person with all those things, you need a very comprehensive, integrated uh, plan or program for people. But we don't do that. We don't provide that in our healthcare systems. Our Medicare system doesn't provide that. Our typical insurance plans don't. And so people get thrown into, well, I don't know how to help this person, so I'm just going to give them more medications, or I'm going to do surgeries that that's they right. don't need, that's right. or I'm going to do injections you know, that's maybe going to help them for a couple of weeks but not turn, change their life around. And that's the, the mill uh, of health care that these poor pain patients have been going through for years and years and years now. And now the end result of it is we see uh, an opioid crisis, we see, um, you know, I was just listening to some of the, uh, the, the employment statistics, and while um, unemployment is low, people reentering uh, the workforce uh, is not good. There's a lot of people who've left the workplace, um, and, you know, maybe they've been injured or had pain problems and didn't get good care, and, you know, they, they're, you know their back is so bad they can't get back out there, or maybe they're so dependent on opioids they can't function at a level to go back to work. And, and so... Lives, you know, lives are being ruined when we don't do a good job uh, helping people with their pain. Mm-hmm. Boy, I think mm-hmm. that is right on. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's unfortunate. I think you, you made the, a, a very key point, which is it's just not paid for. I mean, uh, you want to use a nutritionist, is that going to get paid for? Are you going to, for a psychologist, uh, is that going to get paid for? I can't, I can't believe the amount of pain centers that don't have a psychologist helping them. Because I'm not sure how you differentiate a chronic pain patient from the mental-emotional duress. I mean, that's tough. It's, yeah, it, it, We're all human, and it's part of our, our, our psychological health. It's part of every person's disposition. We don't, we, don't pay, we don't pay for good care. We don't pay for good outcomes. We, don't, we, we pay to do things, yeah. um, but, but there's not a reward system for, help, for helping people get better. Um, and that's broken. Yeah, it is. I had a neurosurgeon say, well, there's, it's very easy to fix the healthcare system. I said, what's that? And he said, all you got to do is pay based on outcomes. That'd take care of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was like, oh, well, that'd be exactly right. To make sure that they actually have successful treatment would probably be very beneficial. That has to be a place for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, so in the book, and you've um, kind of talked several times now about um, – the psychology of it, the sort of mental health of it, and even I would extrapolate out to community and 
kind of the socioeconomic framework and whatever that, um, you know, there's lots of factors. And so you talk about pain brain. <laughs> I wondered if you could spend a little bit of time kind of explaining that concept to our listeners. Yeah, I, I think the the concept of the pain brain is really the key to understanding uh, not only Conquer Chronic Pain, my, my new book, but also I think understanding how we how we conquer pain and how we heal in our own lives. So what we've learned from science and neuroscience research is that the, the structure and function of a person in pain, the, the structure and function of their brain is different than a person who's not in pain or not dealing with significant chronic pain. They are functionally different brains. And then when we start to dive into, well, what does that mean? Or what are the differences? We start to see a whole bunch of different key parts, interacting parts of the brain that become different or changed by the pain experience. And we, we call that neuroplasticity, meaning mm. the brain is very moldable, shapeable. It's an always evolving thing. It's never static. And it can evolve into this pain state where things like, you know, we were talking about our psychological state, our emotions, um, our personalities, our, our memory, uh, how we move our bodies, you know, all these different parts of the brain that regulate uh, our, our hormones, you know, so many things that are regulated get, get remodeled when we're in this experience of, of continued pain. And then once we understand that and how it's all changed, then we can understand how we heal and get better. It's by remodeling that into a healthier, a healthier brain, a healthier version of ourselves and a healthier brain that's communicating with our body and helping our body uh, function better and, and feel better and, and be healthier. That's where real, real recovery, where the real, you know, where the rubber hits the road and where the real victory happens. And it also helps us understand, you know, at least to some degree, why just trying to cover it up with medications isn't necessarily a great long-term solution to the problem because that doesn't address all these different neuroplastic changes that take place structurally within the brain that's making us hurt. Yeah, and I think that's the neuroplasticity part is super interesting to me, right? Because I feel like it's fairly easy for people to get their head around the idea of, well, if I want to have bigger muscles, I work out, and then I see that I have bigger muscles, and I have thus changed my body in some way, and I can maybe lift more, or I can push more, or move more, or whatever. But we don't spend a lot of time talking about how the brain changes, other than probably in catastrophic ways, like um, with dementia or something like that, but these perhaps more subtle changes that gang up on each other, right, and then get these negative outcomes relative to pain or other situations. I mean, it's, I don't know that it's, it's not something you can necessarily see, right? So I don't think that people easily correlate, like, well, my, my brain chemistry has changed or my actual physical yeah, structures in my brain. Yeah, so I love that. I love, like, shedding light on that because I think it has implications, like, across the spectrum from just from mental illness to pain management to, I mean, you name it. If you're telling me that my brain structure can change, the chemistry of my brain can change, I mean, there's so much activity there that yeah, the complexity of it alone is kind of mind blowing, but it's yeah, very I think hard. The average I think, person see, wouldn't yeah, know. I yeah. mean, they don't realize that that it would change yeah. like that. So I think that's a really valid point. That's great. Let me ask you this, uh, Doctor. Um, when someone's going through that process, let's say that you've had somebody that's in chronic pain. They're on uh, standard pain medications. I know they're trying to move to 
the uh, nerve-based neurons and, and gabapentins and all those kind of things to try to move them off of addictive pain medication. Do you believe that some of those uh, chronic pain medications actually um, uh, propagate or move the neuroplasticity in a negative way? Uh, is it a, the thing that's affecting it, or is it just the fact of having chronic pain, or is it a combination? Just curious. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think, um, you know, when you look at some of the research on, on medication management in general for chronic pain, you really find, you know, and I tell, as I tell patients, hey, guys, medications aren't going to get you better. These are the things that we need to do to really, to really get better and heal at a deeper level. Um, but what I think the research has seemed to show is even in the best scenarios where people are finding some relief or benefit with their medications, it's usually the maximum amount that you'll find is like 30 percent. Um, you know, it's not like there, there's rarely a life-changing medication experience for a patient. And, and I've, you know, I've been following people for many, many years on many, many different medications. And, um, you know, I'm not anti-medication by any no. stretch of imagination, but I'm pro-health and, yes. and I'm being, you know, I'm pro-getting well. Um, and, and it may serve a purpose. You know, every, everybody's got a different situation and there may serve a purpose in, in, a, in a process. Um, but I don't think if you put all your eggs in that basket, I, I don't think you're going to, the person you know, who's, who's in pain, I don't think they're going to, on the long term, on the long haul, really feel like that's really going to do it for them. You know, it's interesting. This kind of follows the same type of route of many things in the healthcare system, which you've alluded to, that it's not wellness care. It's not get them well care. Um, good example is how we treat mild, mild depression. Um, and that is, you know, 87% or 83% get an anti, antidepressant, and 13, 17% actually go talk to a counselor. And I'm sorry, but if it's mild, maybe it's 83% should see the counselor and then go from there. And it seems interesting that chronic pain often, well, before it became chronic pain, isn't it frequent that we just gave them pain medications, knocked out enough of it, and then they just kept using it too long. It, most of the time, isn't it for temporary use? Isn't that what we're trying to get done and then build these other models that you have built in your facility? Well, I think we, we are kind of going through a, a, a cycle, you know, where we had, and, you know, we won't spend, you know, probably don't want to spend a lot of time on, on the opioid crisis, the whole history of it. But as we know, um, there was a lot of pharmaceutical industry marketing uh, to physicians that long-term opioids was really a good thing and um, would help improve their lives and wasn't an addiction uh, concern. And so a lot of doctors, including myself, started uh, adapting that practice in the late 90s and early 2000s. And then we started to learn that that really wasn't maybe doing so well for our patients and maybe in some cases causing a lot of problems. And now I think we're seeing people you know, looking for answers and trying to change, you know, the, the, the equation, you look at the CDC guidelines, uh, letters that we've gotten from, you know, the Surgeon General in the past and things like that. And I think the message is let's not keep people on opioids for more than maybe a few days or, or a week after something acute like surgery or an injury. Um, and then let's sort of gravitate towards other things to help them going forward. The problem is, um, our system is not really providing the other things very well and not providing the real solutions. Right. And so just saying no and not having something to say yes to that's better uh, is a problem. Right. And what's the doctor got if he's got no one in you know, a small city of 20,000 people 
how often do they have integrated care systems? Now, I guess you can do the clinic without walls where you kind of pull that together and say, okay, if you're my patient, you got to do this, this, and this. Then you got the insurance company saying, well, you know, you can't really see the MD that day. You're the the, the physical therapist, uh, the chiropractor, and the acupuncturist on the first day because we're not going to pay for all that. You know, it, then you got those blockades too, and it creates a, exactly. a nightmare. So it, it sounds like you're developing a pathway that's working if you can just get them to get through all the hoops. Exactly, it's such <laughs> it's such a challenge. Yeah, uh, and it, it, there's so many. Uh, system systematic roadblocks for, for most people, and it's it's too bad. And it's really the the, the primary care doctor is getting squeezed at so many yes. angles. And like you said, in the small towns where there may be not uh, a lot of resources, they end up you know with the the fifteen minute visit, and they get oh, what are you going to do? You got to give them a prescription That's to right. you know move on to the next person. Right. And, yep. Yeah. yeah, it's it's bad care, and we know that for these people. Do you think that these type folks could move towards? the um, uh, the NAAA model a little bit, that there's groups that support each other, that there are um, um, centers that uh, treat these folks, get them to a point, and then have support outside of it. It almost sounds like that type of model in, with some medical supervision might help. I, I think absolutely. And, and I, I think, um, you know, a system someone has to sort of take the leadership on a system basis. And I, I mm-hmm. think we've seen the military move in that direction uh, somewhat, but because the VA system has got a lot of problems, it, it hasn't really been a, a great, maybe a great role model yet. But, you know, the, the practitioners in that system understand that because they're dealing with lots of chronic pain, addiction, PTSD, trauma stuff. And yeah, so they, they've, sort of gravitated to developing programs like that within their system, although maybe a lot of people are not able still to access it that are in the VA system. But I think if a healthcare system, you know, somewhere takes the lead and, and puts this in place so that and shows this is doing well, this is the right thing, people are, are responding to it, then I think it snowballs after that. It would be great if Medicare would do that, you know, because then it, you know, allows you to do it on a national level. Um, but, you know, it's, it's kind of a disappointment that our, our, our own, you know, government, you know, directed healthcare system isn't really following evidence-based medicine recommendations when it comes to, to pain management. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Yeah. So one of the things that we try to do on our podcast is to also help equip and empower our individual listeners, a.k.a. patients, consumers, whatever, um, with some really sort of insanely practical tools or thinking about how to approach their specific um, challenges. Right. So if, if we have listeners who have chronic pain issues, you know, is there a is there a is there a framework or is there a way to think differently about how they could have a manage pain management plan in place or things that they could maybe ask their primary care physician about that you know like you said they're getting squeezed a lot the primary care folks and uh, you know it's just probably hard to keep up on all of the different things but if we said you know here's five questions or here's certain areas that you could maybe consider as part of your overall ma- pain management plan go kind of do your own research or ask your physician, are there are there topics or areas that you would recommend that our listeners kind of investigate and, and get and get smarter about on their own? Absolutely. I, I, and I, I 
actually devote a couple chapters to that in, in Conquer Chronic Pain, ways the, the patient can navigate a, a system that's you know, often set up to, to help them fail and how to, how to flip that. Mm-hmm. And I think, to your, to your point, there are a few key things I think the person going to the doctor um, wants to make sure they have a good plan for. I, I think one is, is, is on the function side, you know, your mobility, your quality of life is so connected to your ability to get around, whether it's walking, driving, you know, whatever it is to, to get around from place to place. As that diminishes, your quality of life shrinks. And so taking a look, hey, doctor, what kind of things can you help me do to be able to get around better with the problem that I have, with the, the back that I have, the neck that I have, the, whatever it is, the knee that I have, the hip. So mobility is a key one. I think another one is, is interaction or social connectivity. And we know that um, how the quality of our social connections is directly impacts our, the quality, our happiness, our quality of life, how long we live, how healthy we are. And we know that people in pain get very isolated and, and very socially isolated. And, and, and so, hey, doctor, how, what can, things can we do? And, and maybe there are community centers, volunteers, churches, other organizations. Maybe there's psychologists, other behavioral health people that can help the person improve the quality of their, of their um, social connections. Mm-hmm. I think another one, to, to your point, is um, just being, you know, people want to be independent. You know, they don't want to have to depend on somebody to put on their shoes or go to the bathroom or, or make their meals or, you know, so doctor, what things can you help me do so that I can be more independent at home or, or out of the home and, uh, you know, those types of things. I think those are all very tangible uh, but also very important, but often overlooked issues between the doctor and the patient, and it becomes more of a, um, a a real productive process as opposed to the doctor just being a symptom manager and mm-hmm. saying, okay, you're depressed, take this, you're not sleeping well, take that, and you're hurting more, take more of this, and, and not really improving the quality of life of the person who's really suffering. Yeah, I, I will tell you, I think that you did a wonderful job in your book of uh, a much, much more in-depth um, explanation mm-hmm. and documentation because you said it earlier. They got 15 minutes with that doc. Uh, the truth is the doc isn't going to organize all this. I mean, they, they, the family doc, they've got no capacity to do that. Some probably right. have created a few and have been, you know, taken that step because they have a lot of these patients. Um, but your book did a really great job. I think um, conquer your chronic pain will probably have multiple, multiple updates over the next two and three years that you'll be republishing. What do you think? I do. And I was just thinking the other day, um, I'd like to maybe create a little workbook off of oh, it. Yeah. But, uh, That'd be great. In fact, it's exactly yeah. what they need. Cause think about yeah. it. Workbook and this, before they go into the doctor, they already know what plan they're looking for. Yeah. And most docs are going, well, sure, yeah, why don't you Why don't you go to the acupuncturist? In addition, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll support you with this type of medication, yeah. and plus we'll get a PT that does the exercises with you. To me, it all makes sense. Well, and it seems like that would be a natural um, right. way to address maybe some of the, the brain neuroplasticity we talked about earlier. Like if you're in pain, maybe well, it's, harder, psychologist to, it's harder to yeah. to make decisions or harder to figure things out. And if like here's a framework and someone can work through that, it might help them think differently, I guess, is what I'm saying. Um, about yeah, how to... build that village. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. I agree. Exactly. That team exactly. around you. And yeah. even small towns Absolutely. can build something like that. The <laughs> oh, truth yeah. is, I, I would love to see the psychologist 
actually um, putting Help out with and, that, yeah. yeah, and actually saying I I help chronic pain patients. Yeah, I I mean that would be you don't ever see that it's this that and the other thing depression etc. But boy, what a what a huge hit there. Yeah. So the book beautifully built for those things. So I have another curiosity. So I'm I'm the <laughs> I'm the I'm a, not a doctor and sort of the the voice of the every every woman on, on this podcast. But, and there's a lot of so, them. And there's, there's a lot, lot there's of those a lot women. Of, yeah. So we talked, I love the idea of the building the village and, you know, connecting with people and the social relationships and the importance of that. But I also, I tend to be a person who thinks that I can think myself well. So if somebody says, oh, you, I, look, you I'm here to verify that. That <laughs> yeah. is a really true Do- problem. Dr. Benzinger knows this. And so, you know, if I start to not feel well, phys- like I'm getting a cold or something and somebody's like, oh, you don't sound like you feel very well. I'm like, I feel fine. <laughs> I'm good. Right. Like you know, like me- like mentally, I, and your I, leg fell off at the door. And, no, right. no, it's a, I, I feel fine. Right, and I don't know if that's if it's if it's really re- like if that really is the power oh. positive thinking and it's really happening. Good but point. I honestly, knock on wood, I don't get sick very much, even though I get almost sick. And so I guess I'm wondering if that same that's so that's sort of inwardly facing, right? So we just mm-hmm. talked about outwardly facing things, mm-hmm. communities, giving back, volunteering. I mean, how much of a role does that like negative, like negative? Oh, I hurt. Yeah. I can't get Giving out of bed. Into to, it, yeah. Right. I mean, does that is that a, a, a strong part? I mm-hmm. guess of the thinking about pain and pain management, or am I just I'm not really getting sick when I think of myself as not really getting sick? <laughs> I guess is my question. No, I, I I think that's huge, and 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 to your point, my wife she starts to feel something, and she can within a, like a day or two make it go away mentally. Yeah. Whereas I start to get a cold, and then for like three weeks I'm <laughs> coughing and sneezing, and and my you know I'm I'm like down you know struggling to to, to get through the day. And she said, "Come I, I on, like, Peter, I, come whatever on." Whatever she's got, whatever she's got upstairs, I don't have. Let me say, but um, but 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 it is your, the attitude that you bring to this challenge is really important. And, you know, people don't consciously sabotage themselves. They, they don't do it on purpose. But different chatters in our brain get set off by the stress of the situation and the, the, the sheer magnitude and challenge of, of just feeling terrible and rotten. And we start to drift in different directions with our thinking. And then that can pull us, you know, in, into, a, into a box or into a cave that then makes it very hard to get out of and, and ultimately makes our pain a lot worse. Uh, some of the the different thinking patterns that I that I mentioned in the book, you know, one that's very important is the the catastrophic thinking. When we start to think something is really bad or terrible that's going on medically, that's been stati- you know statistically shown to you know make you at greater risk for having more pain, more intense pain, and more chronic pain, and to need more medications and things like that. So, so being able to understand when we're catastrophizing and how to better understand the medical information, but it happens so easily. We go see the doctor, we get a test done or an MRI, and they tell, they give us the information, and we go, "Oh my God, that sounds terrible! I'm going <laughs> to never true. be able to walk again." And yeah. <laughs> but we all we all go through that where it's it's part of being human, and, and taking a step back and, and problem solving how we think about something like that. Um, really important. I, I think another one is anger. Um, people mm. get, you know, when we're injured mm-hmm. or if we're hurting or we're not able to do things because of our medical situation, there's loss. You know, where maybe things we enjoy doing, activities, uh, and sometimes we lose our jobs, sometimes we lose family, uh, relationships, uh, marriages fall apart. You know, so many things get lost when we're uh, significantly um, 
impaired or in chronic pain of some sort, and then we get angry, you yeah. know, about, you know, it doesn't seem right, it's not fair, and it's not fair, but being angry can keep you, hold you back, you know, that's another one. Um, yeah. And then just, you know, just we just, we can actually, if we get, you know, we get uh, beat up too much, we, we give up after a while, and, and regaining that resiliency and ability to overcome things in a more positive way, I, I think we see that we start to do that by creating empathy, gratitude, compassion, acts of kindness, you know, those mm-hmm. sort of things start to pull us out of the bad place and bring us back into a, a more positive, healthier place that we can start to heal in, a better environment for healing. Yeah, Excellent. absolutely. So we could talk about this all day. <laughs> and, Let's do it. <laughs> and we and we and we know that we know that there are other things that you need to get done in your day. Um, but I I would like to maybe close with if you could share super briefly. So from your own personal experience, right? So you have these books about um, chronic pain and how to deal with them and great frameworks and things like that. And this again is my sort of skeptical, biased consumer nature. I would say, well, that's great, but I mean has he lived through something like that? Like, how does he know, right? Um, and so I just wonder if you could give us a little insight, and because I've read that you have lived through this, <laughs> so it's a little, little leading, but, yeah. you know, tell us just a snippet maybe about your experience with chronic pain. This is not something that you are, you, you are personally familiar with yeah. what you're talking about, yeah. right? Not not People just, know you can yeah. relate. I mean, yeah. it's true. Right. So tell uh, us a little bit about that, and then we'll probably close out. Yeah. Yeah, I have I have walked in those shoes, and irony of ironies is when I was working on this uh, my new book, Conquering Chronic Pain. In the middle of that whole process, I had just a horrific back injury. I ended up um, herniating and extruding a nine millimeter piece of disc Ouch. that pinned the S1 nerve root against the facet joint, which is around the bones in my in my lower back, mm-hmm. and I was. Um, I was debilitated and I was pretty disabled. You know, I couldn't sit in a chair for a while. I couldn't sleep. I had to stand all day when I was seeing patients. I couldn't drive a car. Mm. Uh, my wife, I would lay in the back seat and my wife would drop me off at work. Then she'd pick me up. And, uh, and this went on for a while where I, I was so, I was in such agony and I had a lot of neurologic consequences from it as well. Um, and I had to go through a, a, a true healing process to try to, to try to get myself, uh, you know, in a good place again. And I think one, a couple lessons from that for me was, um, it's above all else, it was humbling. It was very humbling to be in that position because here I have for 20 plus years, I've treated people with back pain, with back injuries. Um, and now all of a sudden I'm that person. And that's a very humbling, but also a, a very, uh, kind of settling, and grounding place to be if you're, you know, a doctor doing that kind of work. And the other thing that I think I learned was what I, you know, what I call the chapter in that book is two steps forward, one step back, is that as you try to get better and heal from, from these kind of uh, problems, you make progress, but then you something always happens, and you slide back. You know, you have a, a flare-up, a bad day, uh, the, you know, the numbness comes back, wh- wh- whatever it is. And you can't go to the bad place of thinking, okay, I'm going all the way back to ground zero. All the hard work I did to make those two steps forward is undone. You just have to recognize that's part of the course. It's a rocky ride. It's not a smooth uh, sail or smooth flight. 
and then you get back and you take whatever tools you learned or whatever was helping you move forward, you keep using them to get over the next hump as it comes along, and then ultimately you get to a much better place in the long haul. And now those were some of the lessons that I that I learned personally. Wonderful. And it makes it so, as for a relatable physician, nothing is better than to visit with a physician that's been there. Mm-hmm. There's no Absolutely. question. Okay. There's no way, there ain't no way you can you can understand that kind of severe pain unless you're you're in that position. I mean, it's Agreed. so true. Dr. Abachi, thank you so much for being on today. Conquer yeah. your chronic pain. Uh, Amy and I want to tell you how much we appreciate your time, and we pray that you'll come back on the program at uh, sometime some future. in the future. Yep. Yep. Would love to. Okay. All right. Thanks thank so you. much. Thank you. Excellent. Excellent information. Excellent input. Mind blown. Yep. <laughs> it really, really does make sense. I, and I do want to tell a story because <clears throat> in it. the beginning you said that I was going to tell a story. So I knew I'm, it. I'm a telling a story. Bring it. Okay, so uh, let's talk about car accidents. I can always mute accidents. you later. Okay, so, oh. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Cut it out. Car accidents. <laughs> car accidents. Um, uh, what was always interesting, and it does make sense when you relate to anger, for, uh, lack of forgiveness, things like that that often happens, uh, but this was like 20-some years ago, and it's interesting that the nowadays research is starting to tie together some of these things. Um, but um, when you're looking at a car accident, let's say somebody rear ends, uh, you know, hits you in the rear end and damages your car and you get hurt. Uh, if they come out of the car and they say, well, it's my fault, uh, I did it, uh, and take full responsibility, the person has a tendency to repair and recover at a normal state just a normal period of time. And, and there can be residuals, but still it's a normal process of healing. And this is just something I, I happened to notice years ago in my practice, didn't understand why. Mm-hmm. But then if someone rear ends you and they get out and they were the cause of the accident, everyone knows it, including you, and they lie. The officer comes and says, no, 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 he whipped out in front of me, he did this, he did that, da-da-da-da-da, and then lies to his insurance company and says it was the other person's fault. Knowing that they've been wrong, they will associate that negative emotion with the pain, meaning that until that's made right, they can't release the pain. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting to see that often after a case is settled, pain finally gets better. Not in all cases, but in many cases. So it's interesting how negative events can tie to pain that can create problems. And it's just something that if you've had an event like that, whether it be mental, emotional, or physical, and you still have chronic pain or associated emotions many times, that might be the tie-in, just something to keep in mind. I yeah. just want to mention that. Yeah, so, for sure. So <laughs> great information. I think um, Dr. Bocci's doing a wonderful job of creating a facility out in the— Bay Area. Yeah, the Bay Area in California. I know it's a long ways to go, but the idea of having an <laughs> integrative is, care program— are, yeah. Uh, when you're suffering and you can't find a way out, uh, I think the idea of looking for integrated systems such as what Dr. Bocci yeah, has is Yeah, I think is that's something. the key. It's to understand mm-hmm. how everything is connected together and then to start to take kind of ownership and control over your situation. Yeah. And he's got some sort of super practical ways to, yeah, to think about Yeah, and this is drug free, so. free also. And I, I think you're going to see more out of Conquer Your Chronic Pain from Dr. Uh, Peter yes. Abachi, don't you? I do. Another good podcast. Yep. Appreciate it. Appreciate you. Yep. We will see you next time. Amy Baker, Dr. Sean Benzinger. Humarian Health Podcast. Spilling our guts. For the well-being of yours. That's right. Thanks for having the guts to listen to the Humarian Health Podcast. If you have things you'd like to gut check, send us an email at gutcheck at humarian.com. 